Welcome back, Rebels. Welcome back. So we've got access coming up on Tuesday, the 6th of April. So it's actually tomorrow. Yes. By the time this comes you out. You confused me there because um, we're in a time machine. But yes, as you are listening to yeah. this, uh, access is tomorrow. So that means you need to get your ass over to creativerebels.co forward slash access. Sign up. You'll get a free ticket to the event. Starts at 6 p.m. on Tuesday. For those of you who don't know what Access is, Access is our monthly kind of Zoom get-together thing where we get all the community together. Me and David do a short talk on a topic, a bit like we do on these intros, and then we go into Q&A. So if you've got any creative questions, anything that you're struggling with in your business, within your creative passion, bring those questions along because we'll answer those for you on the evening. Um, it's always a really fun session. It's a great way to network. So yeah, come along to Access. That's creativerebels.co forward slash Access. I am obsessed with TikTok. What about it specifically is, are you obsessed with? Well, I mean, every single aspect of it. I just think it's brilliant. I think, <laughs> I think there's so much fun, entertaining content there. Um, but specifically at the moment, um, there are, like this is so, oh my God, I can't believe I'm saying this on the podcast. There are these videos, right, of mums with their toddlers, like like little babies, yeah. um, doing positive self-talk with them in the mirror. And it's so cute. and you just get a mum going, I am strong, I am powerful, I am kind. And then you get the little like two-year-old going, I am strong, I am powerful. It's so cute. It's growing up that those things are really going to be built into you about how you feel about yourself. And I think that internal voice of what you do say to yourself is so important. So I think just being someone who declares themselves as being strong, being like being kind, especially is one that is really interesting. Because I think if you associate yourself with being a kind person, and that's how you label yourself, everything you do in your life is going to reflect upon that. And I think when there's a decision to be made, you'll be like, well, what will I do? And you're like, well, I'm a kind person. So this is what a kind person would do. I think it's almost like you by putting that on yourself, you then treat it like you're like a third person looking in on yourself being like, well, what would that person do? What would the kind person do? And then it just makes you act in a much more positive way. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can really see these kids, like they understand what's being said to them. Like you can tell that the mums have, this is not just like a, I mean, it is a game and it's, but it's not just like a nursery rhyme. That's just these words that are, are meaningless because I know it's like mm. um, some of the kids when, when they say I am loved, like they give themselves a like a little hug with it. So it's it's, yeah, it's just yeah. yeah associating all of those those lovely feelings, um, and I think so much of our identity is is built up um, when we are that young, when we are like just just coming into the world. And I think for most people, like I mean, so now that I've seen that video on TikTok, if I ever had kids, I'm probably not going to have kids, but if I ever had kids, that would be something that I would probably do now because the the ideas yeah. been put into my head. But I think for most of us growing up, even, like no matter how like loving and kind our parents were, we've all got fucking issues and, and especially like around how we speak to ourselves. And I think if you haven't had that positive affirmation from your from your parents growing up, which most of us didn't, like not in, in that sort of a... Um, that like hyper positive way. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in like sort of a planned routine way, because this is, this is their morning routine. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? This is every day they get up. And I mean, I... I when I grew up, that wasn't part of our routine. Um, so I think for most people listening to this, they won't have grown up with that. And so all of that work has to come later in life when it's much, much harder. Like it's much harder to to work out who you really are, to work out what you think about yourself 
Um, and and really like, <laughs> oh my God, we're going super deep on this intro, but but like what what is the meaning of life? Like really when, for me, it's like how you feel about yourself when you're completely alone and there's no one else about around you. And if you can have positive feelings of, yeah, I'm a person that's making a difference. I'm a kind person. I'm a person that that helps others. All of those good positive feelings, then that for me is a win. Like that means I'm doing life okay. Um, and I, I, I desperately feel sad for the people who don't have that, who feel not, not, not only they don't feel those positive things, they actually feel negative things towards themselves. Like, oh, I'm stupid. I can't, I can't do this. I'm not very good at this, this, this. Um, and there's so much work that goes into decoding that and, and stripping that away from people's lives, especially because we've, we've talked about habits on the show, especially if your habit is whenever something happens, you just, you just beat yourself up over it. You go straight to that negative. Yeah. I remember having a, a call with a listener one time um, and their negative self-talk was so strong. Like they didn't believe in themselves. They didn't believe that they could actually do anything. And they found that every time that there was a problem, they would automatically find an excuse, find a reason for the negative to be the case. And that wasn't how the world was viewing it. That wasn't kind of from the outside of those looking in how it was actually appearing. But straight away, every single time there was something that could be deemed as a problem, she would go straight to the the negative of being like, oh, well, this is because I'm not good enough and this is because of this. And I think obviously it is so hard to break that cycle. And I think on the call, I think like it was probably about six or seven times we were like, you just spoke negatively about yourself there and you can just see it and you can really spot those patterns. And I think it's a lot easier to do it for someone else when you're like talking to someone else and you can observe it. But I think it's the internal ones that are the ones that can often be really difficult to spot. And I think the ones that are the most difficult to change. And I suppose, because it's like, there's so much said about kind of, like, oh, just speak, be nice to yourself, just say these nice things. But I think you ha- I think the action has to be tied in with it. For example, if you want to be seen as a kind person, like you can just, you can look in the mirror every day and say, you're a kind person, you're a kind person. But it's like, there's needs to be some form of action to that. Because it's like, I can say something, but then, if deep down I don't believe it then it's not going to sink in and I feel like that's not going to actually change my mindset like if I want to be deemed as a kind person I want to be able to prove to myself of like well show me you're a kind person then so I think what is good to do in that form is go and do kind things and I think that's where things really start to change if you want to be a certain way if you want to be creative and you currently don't think that you are creative then Go and do creative things because it's only by doing the creative things that you're going to believe, actually believe you're a creative. Whereas you can look in the mirror every single day and be like, you're a creative, you're a creative, you're a creative. And yes, maybe if you say it every single day for a hundred years, that might fully sink in and you'll just forget everything else because that's all you've heard. If you want to fast track that to actually make a difference in yourself, I think it's the action that's really going to help kind of move that self-talk into a more positive direction. Like if you want to be more confident, as an example, then put yourself in situations that you don't feel confident in currently and try and practice because the more you do something, the more confident you get at something. So it's by going out there and actually making, like putting the work in, I suppose, to change, to to make yourself believe it. I suppose this all comes into self-belief and it's like you'll believe you can do something when you've proven to yourself that you can do it. I think it's very easy to just sit and read books, listen to podcasts, just hear this advice. 
but it's not until you actually go and do it that it's really going to sink in and you're actually going to believe the things that you're telling yourself. Yeah, I know Tim Ferriss does that that thing of um, every time you order a coffee, ask for 10% off. Um, and I suppose it, yeah. it's little challenges like that. You could get really, really creative with the challenges that you set yourself up that, that are little trigger points of every time this happens, here's the result. Like every time I do this, I'm going to do this. Um, I know you've um, advised people before to do the rubber band technique. So whenever they start to hear themselves talking shit about themselves, they give themselves a ping of, a, of an elastic band that's around their wrist that, that they're wearing constantly all the time. And then you just have that little pain trigger that, that goes... Like, like really pull it back. Like really give yourself a thwack when you've been a, yeah, been a dickhead yeah. to yourself. Enough, enough that you wouldn't want to do it again. Exactly, exactly. And that's the way that that these sort of, you're going to be able to start forming these habits because the last thing you're going to want to do is like hurt yourself. Um, so as soon as those thoughts start to appear, the you can you can then push them down because you don't want to have to give yourself a thwack of the of the rubber band. I think it's so important. I think it's, it's really like a, a number one step in the journey is overcoming that negative self-talk that that um fear of fear of failure i suppose in a, in sort of a grander sense of i'm not sure if i'm going to be able to do that like going into projects with i'm not sure if i'm going to be able to do this but by the end of it i'm going to come out with a with a set of skills i'm going to come out with experience i'm going to know what did and didn't work i think early projects are such a such a foundational way of of really working out whether someone is going to succeed or not because when they go into their first project and it completely fails around them if they then take that as i am not good at this this sucks i'm rubbish then they're not going to try anything else um yeah and it's a really it's a really difficult place to be in it's like i tomorrow if the if the right if we had like time, which we don't, and that was the reason why we closed the business down in the first place. But if I had a load of time, I would tomorrow go and set up a new tattoo studio because we, what we were doing was absolutely working. Um, just our rent was so astronomical. And so I'd move to a spot where the rent was cheaper. Um, and then I'd just go into doing all of the things that we were doing before. And it's like, so on paper, our tattoo business closing down is a failure. But like, it wouldn't stop me from doing it again because I know that every all of the yeah. micro actions that went into it were all successful. Um, just at the end of the day, we decided we didn't have enough time to to really dedicate because we what we wanted to do uh, was like kind of community events, like bringing people in and around the shop, like doing all of this stuff that wasn't just about getting a tattoo. It was more of an experience. It was it was really building the brand. And while we were doing that to a great degree and seeing a lot of success from it, we just didn't have the time to because like putting on an event really fully takes a lot of your time and our time was being spent working on our other businesses um which were which had to be our priority because they had much more members of staff they had much more higher turnover they just it, it, that was where our time needed to be um but I, I think a lot of people try something once and because they didn't get the formula perfect they're not going to do it again and like the chances of you getting the formula perfect first go so with with graffiti life that that business has seen so many versions of itself. It's evolved and it's changed. And how we always say, like the the business always decides. It always cuts out the people that it doesn't need, and and it and it keeps on growing and it keeps itself to itself. Um, the like at no point has it been a failure. It's just been a different iteration of the business. Like I feel like a lot of people judge themselves based on that first experience, and then that will decide what they go and do next. And it will be the people who 
they failed the first time you're like oh, well, i'm not going to do that again that are the people that are really missing a trick because i feel like you should only really judge yourself or judge other people on like their second attempt for example because the first time is such a learning curve and i feel like you can take so much from that second time because it's like well what did they learn from the first time how they're approaching in a, in a new way and i think that's how you should do it for yourself as well like if you tried something once and it, you didn't succeed then don't judge yourself based on what happened there because like there's so much to forgive yourself over in that first time whereas on the second time it's like did you learn from those mistakes how did you improve on them and it's like looking at the difference between time one and time two that you're really going to see the growth and I think that's what you should base yourself on and I think like that comes down to confidence and anything it's like if you go and judge it by the first time you ever did a public talk then you'll you might be like I'm never going to do that again I was rubbish I was so bad but then look at the second time you did it and then think well actually how was I better than the first time was I less nervous than the first time was I better at presenting than the first time look at all the different aspects of it and see how you improved because you probably find that actually that second time is quite significantly better than the first time and then I feel like that gives you the confidence to then go forward to a third or fourth or fifth and I think the more you do something the more times you go into it then it's easier to look back comparing yourself to the first time seeing how far you've come and then realizing how far you can go forward and I feel like that's where we're at a stage now where anything we decide to do we can have that confidence that it can be successful because we can see where we've come in the past like 10 or 11 years and we're like oh well if we've come this far in the past 10 or 11 years how far can we go in the next 10 or 11 years and I think it's having that confidence to see the growth and know that you can develop and you can get better and you can do anything you actually put your mind to, then it just puts you in such a better position for the future, for your confidence, for anything, for that self-belief and actually believing that I can go and do this because I've done it before, because I've seen the growth in these other areas. Yeah, it makes me think of, of like with anything, there is a healthy balance. So as you were speaking, I was, I was sort of, contradicting everything that we've said earlier because I, I a figure popped into my head and you'll know who I'm talking about who there's a person that we know who thinks that they are so amazing that every decision they make is right yeah, I know who you're talking about <laughs> yep. they think that yeah. every single decision that they make is right and if you ever point out like oh here's something that you could do better they take real offense to it and go you you have no idea so at this stage we've stopped offering advice because this person is so like set in their ways of like I know what I'm doing. Every decision I make is correct. Um, and so whilst whilst their self-talk is really, really great, it's actually really great to a negative degree. So I don't want people to like freak out and be like, but you just told me that I've got to be nice to myself. Like, yeah, you've got to be nice to yourself, but there's always this balance of like each opportunity that comes to you, work out how you think the best way of going about it is. Test it. Does it work? If it doesn't, okay, we'll do that differently next time. And listen to the advice that's around you. Are you taking advice? This is something that we've spoken about before, but are you taking advice from someone who's actually done that thing and they've done it successfully? Or are you taking some advice from someone who's your mum who's never done anything like that, but they just have an opinion um, and then grade those different opinions on a scale of one to 10, uh, 10 being the people who've actually done the thing. And assess really assess what's what's um what's going on be kind to yourself um because that's that's the thing if you're if you if you do have this negative self-talk and you're going to be a dickhead to yourself it's so unproductive um just if you can just flow a lot easier and you can just go okay this fucked up i've learned something 
let's move on and and park those park those mistakes on they're not part of your character they're just something that happened they're just something that you did they're a they're a decision that you made you could have gone left you could have gone right you went left it was the wrong way so next time we're going to go right that has nothing to do with your character that's a decision that you made it doesn't make you a bad person it doesn't make you stupid um and and i when we talk about like people being really smart people being really clever and and you always meet someone at a party who knows a lot of facts and they make you feel really stupid oh didn't you know that well no because when we were all born none of us knew anything and you learned that thing yeah. and you memorized it that doesn't make you better than anyone else um we're like the reason that we do this podcast is to share the things that we've learned over the years our, over our years of, of creativity and business and so we share those things out so that people hopefully know the turns that which turns to take and um one thing i do is is before i make a decision i sort of run through in my head what would gary v do what would tim ferris do i i like i look up to my yeah. mentors and i hope you guys think like oh what would adam and david do in this situation um because once you've listened to enough of us telling you what to do like you probably will have a good idea of like oh, if i was to message them on instagram what might they say um and if you really don't know then just message us on instagram and we'll tell you what we think um <laughs> so get away from those people who <laughs> who make you feel less because they know more than you um i think those those are like really sort of toxic people the key to success is knowing that literally anything that's been done by another human can be learnt it can be learned and it might take you bloody ages to do but as long as you're dedicated enough and that's a thing that you really want to do it's an area that you really want to see success in yeah just keep going like learn adapt change and learn like learn is the key word like just keep keep on learning the different increments be around experts be around mentors be they physical or or just online and see like if another human's done it and most things that you guys are working on have been done in some iteration by another person. So there's a case study and probably a million case studies out there of people who have done this thing and they have been successful. I I, I mean, building an audience, for example, like it's such a it's such a hard thing to do. It's really, really difficult. There are people who are succeeding at that every single day. Watch what they do. Copy what they do. So surround yourself with the mentors, with the people who have had those successes, be they physical, actual real mentors that you have, or be they online, just people that you look up to that have done the thing that you want to do. And I think the the beautiful thing as well is as you start to improve, you can then start to help other people get to that stage as well. And it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about with Martina Martian, but you get that network of creatives around you and as you're yeah. all learning and growing and skill sharing and and um, networking and building like this this kind of creative bubble around you, the opportunities will come. You can share each other's audiences. There's there's so much um, kind of joy that can come from collaboration, and that ties in, in nicely to this week's guest, which is Viv Goscrop. I've just finished uh, Viv's book, Lift as You Climb, which is like kind of aimed at women, but I mean anyone can read it. The the takeaways that I got from it were were really yeah. massive. Um, and the the book is about like how do you help people because we always talk about like I mean if your if your self talk is I am kind and I help other people what does that look yeah. like because sometimes that could be a really hard thing to do and and the book really really breaks down in depth about the ways that we can that we can go along and we can help people other people along the way with us yeah I think when you talked about finding mentors and stuff before it just reminds me of like what we've managed to do with this show 
and the amount of people that we've built around us now who are almost like little mentors in loads of different areas and we're like yeah, hey, well this person's an expert at this what would this person do in that situation and I think it's really useful to have like that kind of broad scale of mentors where you're like well if I've got something to do with this specific topic I know this person what would this person do in this situation and yeah having that around you is just like so powerful and I think this episode with Viv was just a really really good episode like it's the second time we've had Viv on and I think it's always nice when you talk to someone for the second time because you can go really deeper into a certain topic Um, there's a lot to be taken away in this episode about self-talk how to help other people how to actually spend time focusing on yourself and help yourself grow too so yeah such a good episode really excited for you guys to listen to this so let's get into this week's episode Welcome back. I'm so excited to be back, right? I'd wish that we were breathing the same air, but I'm just glad to be in the same virtual room as you guys again. I think what's so nice about having you back is you're one of the people where we refer to you so much on the show. There's like three or four guests who've said something at some point and we loop back to it all the time. And that is Lift As You Climb. Because I think you said- Oh, wow. I I think you mentioned it to us- the last time we recorded and I'm just thinking that is the best phrase I've ever heard I think it's so brilliant and yeah this is where we are now oh that's brilliant well I'm glad that my miserable experiences and long-term <laughs> knowledge as a freelancer can can help other people I'm really glad of that and yeah that's one of the reasons that I wanted to write how to Aim the room and start that podcast and that led into lift as you climb was because I felt that I had experienced so many things as an independent you know having been freelance from my mid-20s I had experienced so many things that made me realize that what we get told isn't true and that I'd been holding myself back from a lot of things because of all these myths you know that that we believe I think they're getting smashed now and you know you smash them all the time on the podcast but I really wanted other people to stop laboring under those myths and yeah, I guess that is part of lift as you climb. Yeah, I mean, although, you know, pandemic version is limp as you crawl. But <laughs> he- helping other people by sharing stuff so they don't have to go through those same things because they're often incredibly stupid, you know, they, when they you find it turns out not to be true. 100%. We, we had some really interesting um, talks about men and women last time you were on. Um, and it feels to me at the moment that we are having so many more conversations. Um, so my girlfriend and I watched um, Promising Young Woman the other night, uh, which obviously has a, a lot, there's a lot going on in that film. Um, there's everything that's gone on with the recent murder. Um, and so there's, there's, I think, conversations about men's kind of role and our responsibility um, towards women uh, which I thought be something interesting that we could talk about because I think we it was really interesting last time we got into sort of the the men and women issues. Yeah, definitely. And I think lots of people are realizing that not only is this an important conversation that we need to have for for many practical reasons and really urgent reasons, such as you know, let's try and stop people from being killed. Um, mm, you know, yeah. the the urgency of that situation is. Uh, is really obvious uh, and in some ways that is you know those these moments when a big story hits the news are incredibly painful 
and they're awful and you know that and for the families involved I'm, I'm just watching the conversation that's going on at the moment between other families have been bereaved asking them to sort of lay off Sarah Everard's family yeah. um, and I think that kind of thing is really interesting but the flip side is that it enables a national conversation about something really really difficult and I really hope that it becomes something that has impetus going forward the other I don't want to say positive because there are no positives to a situation like this but I guess it's something that we Mm. just have to force ourselves to talk about and acknowledge the other semi-positive is that I think it makes all of us realize that the lessons around gender issues are transferable to other structural inequalities because where women are badly treated where there's entitlement in one corner there's going to be other sections of the population who are also being really badly treated. So it gives us an excuse to bring all of those conversations together and ask, you know, where does power lie? What does entitlement look like? You know, all of these things that we pay lip service to that we've been talking about for the last 30, 40 years and yet nothing really changes. What's really going on inside us that we're not talking about, that we're not admitting? And that's true of sexism, racism, all kinds of intersectionalities and diversity and inclusion issues, bringing those all to the surface. You know, the Sarah Everard case came in between International Women's Day and Mother's Day. It came off the back of the discussion around Harry and Meghan and racism. And I see a real sea change amongst people, especially those of us who have privilege, but maybe haven't even thought about that until the last five, 10 years, thinking oh, okay, yeah, I might not actually have perpetrated any crimes myself, uh, but that's not good enough. It's not good enough. We have to look, de- yeah. look deeper. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Is that that we say, obviously, a, a murder, which is basically the worst thing that can happen on the planet, is a murder, is t- the taking of, of another life. And there's hashtag not all men, and most men aren't going to go and murder someone. But it's what the word you mentioned there is power and i think that is is what it comes down to is there is there are power dynamics and there are certain unspoken powers that that men have just through size or culture uh, or teaching i mean I, I saw a really interesting tweet the other day that said um women have always been caregivers so men have defaulted now because we're not in like a hunter-gatherer society. Men have defaulted into being the caretakers. And so we're we're sort of like almost like draining this resource that, that always continues to come. And it always feel, falls on uh, certainly like there's there's women I know in my life that it falls on their shoulders to be the matriarch that provides that all like everything is always done. Everything is in its in its right place. Um, and like you don't need to be saying hashtag not all men and knowing that you're not going to murder someone to actually sort of work on the things that that are going to down the line be this like domino effect of because if little boys are taught kind of just some general respects and ways to treat their their fellow classmates um, perhaps we wouldn't be getting down to these ser- more much more serious cases of murder further down the down the line yeah i mean lots of people have argued that certain climates foster uh and give permission 
to certain forms of extreme behavior. And we see that in politics as well with the empowerment and permission given to the far right. You know, it's very easy for certain attitudes to appear to be harmless and appear to be free speech. And yet they're underneath the surface fostering and enabling all kinds of behaviors. So there's a parallel there as well. What I find really interesting is this conversation is a very circular one and I've been writing about gender issues and why it's okay to talk about men and women. Like some people even say, well, you know, women have equality now, so why are you making the case? You know, when I first started doing events for How to Own the Room, I had one man stand up and say, look, you've had Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May. (laughs) What more do you want? Why are we still having this conversation? So that attitude was always there. And this is a circular conversation that we've been having for 30, 40 years. I know that people who work in uh, in social justice in the US will say the same about race for the, you know, the last mm. 50, 60 years. But I think finally, I think partly because of social media and the, the reduction in the power of um, legacy media, although that is slightly debatable, I st- still got a lot of persuasion and power legacy media. I don't think they made the right call um, about Meghan and Harry and uh, uh, attitudes towards racism. I think that's yeah. interesting. I think they made a wrong call, but you know, time will tell about that. But I think that now that people are able to have more democratic conversations, everybody has a megaphone, everybody has a podcast, everybody has social media. Those attitudes that are fostered by our sort of culture, the cultural conversation, the national conversation, the mainstream conversation, the conversation that used to be led by legacy media, it can be much more nuanced now and people get to to take their own language and their own ideas instead of previously would be borrowing yeah. from academia right and in academia you would have concepts like internalized misogyny internalized racism and those are the things that we're starting to talk about now without having to use those terms which are really really off-putting so it's right that we all look at our internalized misogyny which is everything from a woman thinking she must be the primary parent otherwise she's failed as a mother which is just not true or a man thinking uh, they're not allowed to cry because they'll look like a weakling uh, which is just so incredibly damaging Mm -hmm. right but -hmm. these things are all internalized in all of us because they have been prevalent in our culture for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, in order to uphold a power structure And it's only really since, you know, the invention of the pill in the 1960s that we are freed from those biological constraints and can say, well, on paper, we're all equal. So how come in reality it's not playing out like that? Well, it's because of what's going on inside us. And unless we look at that, all the external measures that we put in place, all the laws about equal pay, discrimination, they can exist, but the power stru- the internal power structure that holds us to these old ideas, uh, unless that is broken, then all the external laws in the world, whilst I want them and I think they're really important, um, they're not going to move as fast or create change as quickly as we would want. Yeah. I think the, the whole legacy media thing is really interesting because I think, and it goes back to what David was saying before about power, I think because I've obviously been in a space where they have so much power, now things are moving more away from just printed newspapers. They've now taken that with all the money that they've got into the digital space. And I think watching um, films like The Social Dilemma and kind of understanding that 
the media that I consume, I don't ever see any of that. But I know that there's a huge portion of the population who do consume lots of that media. I'll and I'll see it because I'll like someone will have screenshotted it and be like, oh my God, I can't believe this was said over here. And I think so it's so important to think about, well, what kind of world do you want going forward? And then what kind of media are you going to consume? Is the media you're consuming moving towards the world that you want? And I think it's very easy to just kind of like, oh, this is a funny thing that was said in the Daily Mail. I'm going to repost that or share that because those things get spread around over time. And I think it's just that, can be so damaging. Last night I was watching the um, Caroline Flack documentary and I think so much of what led to her like suicide was the media and just kind of constantly this bullying and then you see it with kind of Princess Diana and Meg Markle. It's just this like constant cycle. I used to work in newspapers so I have seen firsthand how those stories get created and yeah people definitely treat it as a game and for them, it was a game of, and I guess for many people still now, and I see this on television and social media as well. It's a game of numbers. You know, these people want numbers. They want mm. clicks because that converts to money. You know, previously it used to be your circulation of your paper needs to be high so then you can raise your advertising rates. Um, nobody ever really makes money from actually selling a physical yeah. paper for you know, used to be 50p, now it would be pound fifty. That's not where they make their money from. They get a little bit of money from that, but they make it all from being able to say, not even our circulation, like the circulation is number of copies sold, our readership. And the readership would be things like, you know, lots of papers used to have a deal with British Airways where they would take, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies to give away on planes uh, for, you know, 10p a copy or something, or probably not even that. And then they can say, oh, our circulation is, uh, our readership, our readership is everybody who goes on a British Airways plane, for yeah. example, right? So they're always after these numbers. And now you see the same with people chasing ratings, uh, you know, that's why Donald Trump was completely obsessed with ratings, chasing social media numbers, you know, story coming out of the Telegraph the other week saying that they want to reward journalists financially for the number of clicks that their article gets. Well, that you know, which loads of people were complaining about, but that is sort of already what is happening. You know, mm. if you think of the rise of people like uh, Piers Morgan, Katie Hopkins, um, any number of uh, commentators who, who deal in outrage, they are financially rewarded, professionally rewarded because they generate eyeballs, clicks, outrage, and all of those things can be monetized. And I, you know, much as I'm, <laughs> we're all like tiny players in this big game, but I realized a couple of years ago that I was doing that thing that you were describing, Adam, of seeing a story and thinking well that's disgusting I must draw people's attention to how disgusting that is but then you double their audience mm. because their audience is people who read that consumer and think yes thank goodness someone is speaking the truth that's part of their audience and then you double it if you become the person who says oh I can't believe that someone's saying this so I still sometimes call out things uh, if I feel it's um very occasionally I would permit myself to do that if I think it's entertaining. You know, I've just retweeted something this morning, idiotic, that Matt Hancock has said. Yeah. <laughs> um, but most of the time I pull back from that because 
outrage generates a double a, a double audience. It generates the audience who want to consume it and enjoy being outraged uh, and feel that their views are being represented. And it generates an audience who wants to complain about the outrage. And you are indirectly funding them. So we all have to be really, really careful with that. And again, that, for me, that's part of lift as you climb as well. Like, are we really lifting each other by constantly sharing this outrage? Yeah. No, we're not. And actually, yeah. uh, if you look at those charts that have come out of um, neurological research around what gets shared on social media, the areas of anger, fear, anxiety, hate are massively amplified when they examine the psychological content of social media. A areas where it's, uh, you know, love, passion, good news, uh, they are not amplified. That is not amplified on social media because our brains loved, we're attracted to threat and fear because we have this sort of crazy idea that goes back to prehistoric times that we can protect ourselves and we need to run away from the lion. That's, you know, that's our, that's our prime, primal brain instinct. And I, yeah, it's not like I wake up every day thinking I need to fight against my primal brain instinct, uh, but I'm aware of that and I don't want to become part of that culture. We are, we're, we're all better yeah. than that. And if a lot of us ignored that outrage media, it would not have the oxygen of publicity and it wouldn't have as much money. So I know you said before that negativity is way easier to spread than positivity. How do you spread positivity? I think you spread it by being very accountable. So you're intentional in your actions. You try not to react you know think about responding rather than reacting and think about acting from a place of neutrality or intention rather than reacting to everything coming at you it's a bit like in lots of freelancing and entrepreneurship you know people say work on what is important rather than on what is urgent it's really easy to be constantly like it's like being driven by your inbox you know is your work responding to emails and dealing what's in in your inbox well it shouldn't be <laughs> you know what's your real work so spreading positive ideas doing the work putting out what needs to be put out rather than constantly reacting to everything that's coming at you you know for me I've always going to mention him and everything that I do it's very much based on the ideas of Seth Godin like and if you want to understand how to do those things and how to think about your work in a way that is intentional using ideas of his like choose yourself you know spreading positivity and not sharing outrage messages is part of choosing yourself you know nobody don't wait for somebody to come and employ you and hire you to do the work that you want do the work that you want yourself and you know to adopt a creative rebels motto you know find out what the passion and the positive thing it is that you want to put out in the world and work out how you get paid for it uh, that is how to spread the positivity well, I think we should just stop recording now because that's, like, we're done. Stop, that's it. Stop recording and go print T-shirts. Um, yeah, we had Seth on, on the show recently and um, it's it, it's very, I think the people that want to ch make a change in the world um, is very admirable, but there's so much that needs to happen with ourselves first before we're able to make that happen. And I think that's a lot of what you talk about um, in the book is, these, these little things that we can correct within ourselves that are going to make everything so much easier. Um, I mean, the, the main one that jumps to mind is kind of negative self-talk. And you did 
really interesting mini series on the podcast recently about about self talk and and um and and I mean so and you mentioned during that that there's that negative self talk is more prevalent with women um but certainly there's there's a lot of men that go through it as well um and and you've suffered with it in the past so how can we um start to be a little bit kinder to ourselves because i guess once we're kinder to ourselves then that then it's going to be easy to share that positivity outwards as well yeah the uh masterclass on inner voice that i did on the podcast how to own the room was with a psychologist ethan cross and he has a book called chatter the voice inside our head and how to harness it and i got hold of an early copy of this book and i was kind of blown away by it because he is uh he's a a neuroscientist a psychologist he's one of the world's leading experts on the conscious mind and he has all of the scientific stuff at his fingertips about how we process thought how we talk to ourselves why we have certain mechanisms and processes that we use to determine our inner talk, how some people use it in positive ways, how some people use it in negative ways. And it, it comp- I found it completely fascinating and I just wanted to hear more from him and get him to translate some of the ideas uh, into the space around owning the room and confidence and public speaking because where I come from at this is really from the moment when I was moving from being a journalist to being a stand-up comedian, which is 10 years ago now. And I knew, I had a lot of positive self-talk of thinking, I know this is a bit of a crazy idea, but I'm really going to be betraying something in myself if I don't do it. So I have to do it. It doesn't matter if it goes a bit wrong sometimes or if uh, other people say it's crazy and stupid, which they did. Um, Uh, It doesn't matter. It's okay. It's okay. So I had a lot of positive self-talk, which was what enabled me to do it. And I had the strength to listen to that. But I also had so much negative self-talk. I used to call it like Radio Gaga. I had this kind of Radio Gaga in my head the whole time of, this is mad. You shouldn't do this. This is a really terrible idea. Um, It might be uh, okay for you to do this like as some kind of experiment. But really, what are you thinking, Viv? And, and, you know, did you see how you just got through that five minute set and you didn't get any laughs? What's wrong with you? Like, read the room. <laughs> I mean, I, it was almost, it was sometimes almost deafening, actually. And it's really interesting. And Ethan Cross talks a lot about this in Chatter and we talked about it on the podcast. Differentiating between useful, critical self-talk where your brain might be saying to you, oh, you know, this is quite a difficult decision. I need more information. I need to check in with other people who have experienced this and see if my instincts are telling me the right thing. I need to get um, some like objective information. Like I need to watch a video of myself doing this to see, does it really look like how it feels? You know, so that kind of thing is actually really useful. And it's what you might use in something like sports coaching to use process, like using process to examine things is really, really helpful. But it can very easily extend into over-analysis, extreme self-criticism. Um, with women, it strays a lot into the world of the brilliant coach Tara Moore, M-O-H-R, author of Playing Big, who I also reference a lot, who would say this is going into what she calls good girl behaviour, which is always trying to get an A on the test, always trying to be the best, um, where perfect is the enemy of done you know done is always better than perfect Mm. as seth would say ship 
why haven't you shipped? <laughs> um, so for me, the inner voice thing is really about being very, very honest. You know, I was saying earlier about this idea of accountability. You know, we're all accountable to ourselves and that's really the only thing that matters. We're all responsible for our own behavior, our own thoughts, our own feelings. We're all responsible for looking after them. Like, of course, you're not responsible if you're having a really bad time and things are difficult. You've got terrible mental health. That's not in inverted commas your fault. But it is your fault if you don't then take the right steps and, and get help and get looked after. And within a voice, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, don't you don't have to just sit by and take this. Uh, you, you can examine it. You can say, oh, I'm talking to myself. This is all from, you know, CBT as well, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, oh, I'm talking to myself in a way now that's really, really unhelpful. I need to go and listen to some music or talk mm. to a really positive friend. It's all so basic. That's what's really interesting to me. It's so basic. This is not rocket science. And sometimes I interview somebody like Ethan Cross, who is amazing. And I think, wow, is this really a, a science discipline? <laughs> because a lot of it is just common sense. And a lot of the academic science around uh, neuroscience in particular is reflecting common sense, things that we all know. We all know we shouldn't say to ourselves, um, oh, you just look so ugly today. You're hideous. Or as I see, you know, there's a bit on the podcast where I said to Ethan, Ethan, I have to tell you about this thing I've just done. Um, I was exercising and afterwards I went to see my daughter about something. And as I approached her, I said under my breath to myself, sweaty old cat. <laughs> and my daughter, who's 14, said, mom, why are you talking to yourself like that? And I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm really, really sorry. But my brain was telling myself, sweaty old cow. And we have to hold ourselves to account because we cannot be telling ourselves those things. And for me, it's, I know it's sort of, maybe this is even quite funny and quite silly that we might think about inner voice. But for me, it has this really, really deep and important resonance of this link between the internal narrative, internalized misogyny, misogyny, internalized racism, <laughs> all of the crazy ass, fearful, hateful, awful, terrible things that we think inside. We are going to have to put them under the microscope and do something with them because otherwise they fester, they fester. So part of it is about being useful to yourself and making sure that you're not telling yourself stories that aren't really true and aren't really useful. And part of it is all of us doing the internal work of, you know, am I behaving exactly how I want in the world? Am I part of the solution rather than being part of the problem? Am I constantly being triggered by outrage and resentment? I think a lot of people who are triggered by outrage and resentment, they are plagued by that inner voice of, mm. you know, you're a terrible person, you're ugly, this is awful, blah, 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 blah. And if they could look at that and change that... I don't think they'd be so drawn to outrage and horror uh, and, you know, sharing all this negativity. There's that um, quote, isn't there? I don't know who said it, but um, if you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Which is which is so true. You mentioned in the book the the contrasting ideas that you were presented as a kid of you can achieve anything, anything's <laughs> possible, you've just got to put your mind to it. And then also... Um, when you actually said, oh, I'm going to do this thing, going, oh, are you sure? Oh, that's a bit risky. Um, 
and that I think that like how are we going to believe in ourselves when all of the messages that we're getting externally are all very very unsure it's so difficult <laughs> and it's a life's work to be I mean it sounds really cheesy but be the supportive friend to yourself that you need to be so that you're not thinking literally I can do absolutely anything I believe I can fly I believe I can touch the sky because you know you're going to fall out of a top floor window if you try to do that so you don't need to believe I can achieve absolutely anything because we all know that's a false promise but you also don't need to believe Oh, you really? Oh, I don't know. No, no, no. That that's that. Oh, it could go wrong. You you need to be somewhere in the middle. And for each of us, I think that middle point is located slightly different ends of the spectrum, and it can be down to personality and down to lots of different things. Like you know, I'm not. I would never say for a million in a million years like everybody should become a stand up comedian or everybody should become an entrepreneur. Um, these things are not for everybody. And then some of us are very happy to be in a team environment to be. Uh, in a beneficent organisation who are going to look after us <laughs> look after us a bit and others of us are much happy being independent taking more risks it's about knowing where you sit on that spectrum and making sure that you sit in a nice neutral kind of place where you you glimpse possibility and you sense possibility without becoming really grandiose about it and you keep at bay those ideas of negativity I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that. Um, I think, I think if I printed out a list of all of the incredible A-list guests that you've had on your podcast, and I took that list in a time machine back to you at 20 years old, and I went, <laughs> "Here's your future podcast," you would not believe me. Um, and I think so. The belief that you can achieve, quote unquote, anything, I think is, I think you can achieve a lot more than anyone who's listening to this right now believes they can. And I think I'm just starting, me and Adam have had this conversation recently, how we're both just getting to the point of like, really, if we can imagine it, we could probably work out how we're going to do it. And like almost without limit. Um, and I think dreaming big is actually, like it's, it's such a journey. And, you, and like you said earlier, it's like, it is a life's work. Um, I remember when we first started our, our company and we met Jamal Edwards, who at the time had a book called Self-Belief. And I was just like really pissed off with the title of like, oh, if you just if you just believe in yourself, anything is possible, which is the the, the kind of theme of the book. And mm. I was like, I did the classic, the absolute classic, that's easy for you to say kind of attitude. Because, um, yeah, you've you've had all of this good luck and this has happened to you and and. And then realizing gradually after an 11 year journey of achieving all of this stuff, realizing, okay, actually, if we set our goals higher and bigger, they are achievable because we do have self-belief because we have managed to do everything here. Um, so I think I think big, outrageous, outlandish goals are, are a good thing. Yeah, I thank you, David. I thank you for pulling me up on that because I do agree with you that what do they call it? Some people like big, scary, hairy goal or something. You should mm. always have a big, scary, hairy goal. And that sounds really it disgusting. It does, yeah. Horrible, <laughs> um, yeah, let, let's call it uh, dreaming big. You should always dream big. And yeah, it's true. I, I've achieved way more than I ever 
thought possible and if you did construct this time machine which i think with the skills that you and adam have i think you probably anything's possible yeah. could create <laughs> construct the time machine i would not be surprised if you came back to me in a year's time and said viv we've constructed a time machine and we came back to you, you in the year in the past yeah. you mean is that yeah oh, Mind alone. maybe that's what's really happening what's what's happening is you've you've brainwashed me and i'm secretly in my own past or future or something but yes dreaming big i guess the reason i'm a, perhaps a little bit more cautious than you are about this is because i don't want people to feel bad <laughs> or think oh i've i'm a failure because i am scared i'm a failure because i'm scared to do have this big dream and also i'm aware that when you you know let's be honest about this you know how is it that i got hillary clinton on my podcast how is how is that uh, you know somebody said to me recently oh we want you to come and speak to us viv about how to get hillary clinton in your network because that's what you did and i was like you really think that Hillary Clinton is in my yeah. network or that I have a net? I mean, come on. So let's be honest about how I got that. I got that not really through dreaming big, but through being a journalist for 15 years, uh, writing book reviews for pretty much 25 years, which meant I had really good contacts in the publishing industry and people trusted me, which meant that my... Uh, request to interview Hillary Clinton fell on receptive ears, right? With the person who was connected to her in the publishing industry who was granting interviews. That's how that happened. Uh, and it also happened from, you know, then they could see the reputation of the podcast is good. It's had other really good guests on who Hillary Clinton would know, like Professor Mary Beard. You know, so all of the pieces of the jigsaw were there. Um, so it's partly being dreaming big, but it's more having a vision where you can day in day out create a reputation for yourself create trust do the grunt work like a lot of what's behind the scenes of dreaming big is grunt work of you know show up do the article show people that you can be trusted show people that you're not afraid to get your hands dirty do work um, this is a whole other conversation but do some work not very much work that you don't get paid for, you know, it's not, but not very much work. Don't do very much of that work. Uh, you know, you have to do the work. And of course, maybe the big dream will help you to do that. But you need to be sustained by an enjoyment of the work and the process at yeah. the same yeah. time. Yeah, I think like so much of it is having the vision of what you actually want, because it's like if someone is listening to this and they're like, oh, I'd love to interview Hillary Clinton. And I've never interviewed anyone before. But it's like, well, yes, this might be possible. But actually, you're going to need to go through a similar journey to what you've done. You're going to need to go through 20, 30 years of journalism down that route. And then it's going to be possible. But it's mm -hmm. like, you're, that has to actually be something you genuinely want. And it not be, I think, ego fueled. I think that's where the difference really lies. Is it's like, if, like, if you're like, oh, I want to have the biggest company in the world. Like, why do you want to have that? Like that's just so you can say I've got the biggest company in the world. It's not because you really want to do that. And I think a lot of people when they're getting started or when they have these visions, they are ego led visions. They're not based on actually what as a person they want to achieve. And I think as soon as you've yeah. realized what you actually want, what that vision is you want to strive towards, then you can just start putting all the work in place to get there and realizing that it is going to take a lot of work to get there. Like if I want to obviously if we want to interview Hillary Clinton we've obviously had a we 
been interviewing for quite a while now but it's like if you started from nothing and it's like okay well this is the work I'm gonna to have to put in to get there and it's not gonna be easy but I'm always gonna be working towards this thing that is for myself it's what I want to do it's what I enjoy doing in the world rather than I just want to interview this person because it's gonna make me feel really good about myself because I'm gonna be like yeah cool I've interviewed them because also as soon as you've hit that point then it's like well what now because it's like if your goal was to interview yeah. someone like Hillary Clinton that's happened and then that was all you ever strived for then now you'd be feeling really lost yeah for me that's the definition what you've just described Adam of what I call in lift as you climb altruistic ambition so it's having ambition having a big goal having a big dream of course and it doesn't have to be something like interviewing a famous person or having a big company it could be um you know, making sure that everybody on my street recycles or stopping the planet from imploding. You know, it can be a, a, a very, what you might call a charitable goal or an environmental goal. Um, but that goal needs to be altruistic because I, and I sort of conceived a lot of the ideas that I've had really around women and what I think women need to be talking about but I also think this is really true for everybody um, especially now that we're in a pandemic and everybody has a lot more awareness around ideas of environment and consumerism and how far we go with capitalism and the cost of that I think it's it's not a gendered conversation but I think the era of wanting to succeed for personal gain for individual success, for ego, as you say, I think that that era is over. It, I don't even know if it was really ever with us. You know, we were fed a lot of messages in the 80s and the 90s around success and mobile phones the size of bricks and having a corner office and having a Ferrari and that whole kind of sex in the city. If you're a successful woman, you must have a wardrobe of 550 million shoes and have blow dried hair and all these very prescribed cosmetic ideas of success. I'm not sure that anybody really bought into them. And a lot of the conversations that came out when I started How to Own the Room were of women saying, I just don't want to have the corner office and have the big business card and have the big title and be in charge of loads of people and be swanking around the place. I want to do interesting things and create change in the world and be part of a team. And I was seeing people being so alienated by all of that even before the pandemic that I started to talk about this idea of altruistic ambition. You know, what does it look like to have big dreams, big goals, to to have ideas that really would progress things that aren't to do with material gain and always bigger, faster, stronger, mass, most massive company in the world, best-selling book, podcast with 10 million downloads. Um, you know, what does it mean if you're ambition is altruistic and you do it for others and to take others with you and I really think that is what most people care about now yeah I think as well as you were talking there um I think what is quite an interesting thing to ask yourself is like what would the average person do in this scenario for example like as you talked about recycling on the street if the average person would recycle x amount or do this amount of work in a week if you just do a little bit more than the average in every single area then you're always going to be pushing things in a positive direction. And I think even just kind of look at stepping back and analysing like what it is that everyone's doing and then think, okay, I'm just going to do that a little bit better. 
Because if everyone did that, or even, well, the thing is, everyone's not going to do that. So even if you did it twice the amount, then it's like every person who's not doing that, you're just one extra person doing it. So for example, if the country is 50-50 split on certain decisions, if you're just putting in twice the amount of positivity in a certain area, then hopefully that's going to move people in a direction that's going to make society better. Because if everyone just works a little bit more towards the positive, that all adds up significantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about what you're describing is really a manageable shift and a manageable change. And those things are so, so important. That's again, a slight, you know, argument against the dreaming big is, you know, maybe dreaming big is making a 1%, 2%, 10% change. Yeah. Maybe dreaming big, maybe that's what it is. <laughs> and maybe dreaming big as well is making your 1%, 2%, 3% change seem less significant than it is. Where actually that is so important. Yeah. Well, that's what shifting the norm is what is important. And the mm -hmm. norm is only shifted in tiny, tiny increments. So, yeah, it's very hard to keep that kind of vision and that positivity and the bigness of that. And, yeah, to be taking one extra can that you were going to put in the other bin and making sure, oh, yes, I'm going to wash that out now. Just those tiny things, those are hard for us. You talk in the book about uh, sort of almost feeling guilty um, if you're not able to lift, um, if you're not able to help or be altruistic at certain points. Um, so, so how important is it to kind of forgive yourself in those in those times when because there are going to be times where we can't consistently always a hundred percent of the time be lifting. Yes. I wanted to emphasize that we can't, you know, there's a lot in our culture and, and in, uh, I'm sure you will have discussed it many times in the podcast, the idea of being your best self, you know, that would be the dreaming big self. I don't think you can be your best self in inverted commas all of the time. I don't think that, you know, you can prepare for the day when Oprah's going to come knocking and tell you how fabulous you are every single day of your life <laughs> I think you can have <laughs> days and times and seasons of being in inverted commas selfish and I mean like not selfish selfish but good selfish like self-nurturing selfish of taking downtime of thinking okay I've done quite a lot for you know this part of my work or these colleagues or this team or these friends in recent weeks, months, um, I'm going to take some time for me. You know, it's really important for these things to become automatic, easy actions um, when you think about, you know, the activities that you might engage that are part of what I call lifting as you climb, which is things like, um, you know, reaching out to other people in your industry when you've uh, been impressed by something that they've done for no reason other than ch just to give them a boost. Um, it's sending handwritten notes to people rather than constantly using Zoom, um, reaching out to people by phone. You know, the phone is much underused. At, say, you know, call somebody who you worked with 10 years ago just to say, I was thinking of you the other day, how have you been? Uh, those kind of things, they're really tiny but they add up to lifting as you climb and showing people that they are seen, they are appreciated. I think maybe something a little bit British in our culture sometimes that we don't feel comfortable necessarily telling people those things or we think they're going to 
think that we want something in return and so we don't do it. There's a lot of messiness around that. But you cannot be doing those things all of the time. And you need to make it easy for yourself to do them when you're feeling good and when you've got lots of energy and you've got time for generosity. But I didn't want people to feel burdened by that. You know, I I talk a lot about this Madeleine Albright quote, uh, there's a special place in hell reserved for women who don't help other women. And that was one of the things that inspired Lift As You Climb was to investigate why do we say that? Why do we tell women that they're going to go to hell if they don't help other women? We don't say that to men. We, You know, you never hear in a male environment, oh, you know, oh, he was not very brotherly towards me. Whereas women will say, you know, I was expecting sisterhood and what I got was a bitch. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's almost celebrated well, so- in men, isn't it? It's, it's, I mean, Steve Jobs was famous for being a, a cruel taskmaster and, and that sort of like ruthless, I think it's kind of going out of fashion now, but that sort of ruthless, take no prisoners, I'm the, the big, big boss man, um, almost became like a trope that people wanted to, to be that. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's to me, that's part of that sort of 80s, 90s idea of like, go, 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 Gordon Gecko all the way that yeah, I don't yeah. think most people really identified with or they didn't want to. Well, I, say, I don't want to say nobody wanted to work for Steve Jobs. Clearly, lots of people wanted to work for him. But I think it's a work ethic and a way of being that is it's not up on a pedestal in the way that perhaps it used to be. But what I really wanted to show people was that there's a way of incorporating this altruistic ambition and lift as you climb and an idea of ease and taking other people with you that is not a sort of self-righteous, self-flagellating, you know, oh, I always lift as I climb. I love to help other people up on the ladder behind me. Like, I'm not trying to say, like, be Mary Poppins, you know, that that's the last thing I want <laughs> women in particular to absorb. Like one of the things that I challenge a lot um, is the idea of niceness and good girl. And there are going to be some people who say that you're too harsh or you, and you know, in the book, I, I say at the end, you know, to all the people who I will have pushed past to get to the loo because I was a bit drunk to all the people whose emails I've ignored to all the people who asked me for, uh, you know, a recommendation for their book and I didn't give one. <laughs> Sorry, mm. but hey, uh, you know, we cannot all be lifting as we climb all of the time. But if most of the time we're okay and we've made an effort and we've tried to be generous in the moments when we have the bandwidth for it, then it's good enough. What I'm finding really interesting here is the fact that the idea of lifting and climbing and how important it is to climb. Because I think... If you only climb up to, like, say, like 1%, then you can only help everyone at 1%. And then you've made no significant difference. If you spend your whole life just raising everyone 1%, you've made no significant difference to those people's lives. Whereas actually, if you spend a good amount of your time climbing, so you can reach a certain like level that you've really surpassed where you were before, then start helping people up. It's like, I think there needs to be that balance, isn't there? It's like, the more time you spend climbing, the higher you can get, which means the further you can pull other people up. But if you spend too much of your time just lifting, then, yeah, you're not really going to make much of a change. Yeah, absolutely. And so people can get an idea of where the expression comes from. You know, lift as you climb is it's been credited in lots of different areas. Um, It's an African proverb. 
Uh, it was a motto of the civil rights movement in late 19th century US where a women's group adopted it as their motto because when they were asking for the vote and they wanted to say, you know, this isn't about one person or one particular group or, you know, only people who own property can get the vote. This is about when one of us climbs, we lift the others. So we get, and it's like, um, you know, the Tony Morrison quote, life is not a grab bag candy game. So if you get some sweeties, is your duty to either distribute some of your sweeties to the other people or show the other people how they get the candy. Life mm. is not a grab bag candy game. And I think people are wary of this because, and, and, you know, I had some really interesting reactions when we were putting the book together from uh, younger women in particular who were working on the book and they're saying, oh, I'm really uncomfortable around the word power, really uncomfortable about climbing, really uncomfortable about ambition. I've, I just feel these things make me feel really pressured. And I really wanted to explode that myth and let people who are humble, shy, introverted, not flashy, um, who have, I mean, like the Greta Thunbergs of this world, you know, let them climb. You know, we don't just need the sort of showy, flashy people with uh, huge ideas of like, oh, I'm going to create a company that's as big as Uber. Uh, we need people with sort of small ideas and quiet voices to be comfortable around the idea of ambition and power, to redefine what those things are and to reclaim them for quieter people so that everybody gets a share. At moving forward what is a really important thing to do as well instead of just lifting it's build the ladder for people to be able to get up themselves because i feel like that's what we're doing with this show it's like we're not there literally holding everyone's hand as we're pulling up but we're creating stuff that then anyone can come along find any point hopefully get what they need to succeed and i think if you can do that at the same time find a way that you can build a support network that people can then go and help themselves up that's going to be a lot less of your effort to help all these people but it allows you to help people at scale rather than just the individuals yeah that's such an important point yes does it scale <laughs> and i think sometimes we're frightened to help others because we think oh what difference can i really make it's only one person and it might not even work anyway and we sort of give up but if we can recognize that even the thoughts and the ideas and the conversations that we put out there, I've heard so many people like in, even in the last few weeks at events I've been doing about lift as you climb, when I talk about, you know, if you're impressed by something that someone does, just tell them and people saying, Oh yeah, somebody did that for me the other day. They just sent me an email, someone in another part of their company who they don't even know. They sent me an email saying they really loved my presentation and I was just blown away because nobody ever does that. And I think we do hold ourselves back from those tiny moments because we think that it's just like a, you know, a drop in the ocean. But it isn't. It isn't. And as you say, these things can be about cultural influ influence. They can be about putting good ideas out there. And those things, we don't think that they scale, but they absolutely do. Yeah. And, and I suppose it's it's being aware and noticing what's going on as well isn't it it's um i i don't know where the word came from but i see our friend uh, amy Keane using it a lot of of the mantle of just a panel co completely um comprised of of men and actually recently we were we were asked to do 
like a mini podcast series for International Women's Day, um, interviewing successful women. And really, we we just came back with, well, don't you think there's a, a woman that's probably better <laughs> yeah. suited to to be interviewing these these people? Um, and I and I suppose it's yeah, it's being sort of aware of what is a what is the right opportunity to take. And I think I love that you mentioned there about the thinking about the shy the shy people like the the squeaky wheel gets the grease is always the saying and like remembering <laughs> remembering the the shy ones and the quiet ones and i mean you even say in the book that that will will have reached equality when there's as many um unqualified like stupid women in the positions that are filled by unqualified stupid men <laughs> well that's a really important point that we don't like to talk about and often the conversation around feminism and equality is dominated by the idea that if a woman does something it is virtuous because it has been done by a woman and that is not equality at all so we need room for women to mess up be rubbish um be promoted by mistake uh, we need you know we need room for everybody to be treated equally and that is what equality is it's like the equality to mess up uh be incompetent all of those things people not very comfortable talking about this but it has that has to be otherwise it's not equality but for me yeah it's about that idea of I don't I think sometimes we're kidding ourselves if we can say everybody must have a voice you know there's a limit on people's attention span there's a limit on the time you know to our capacity is is infinite but our attention span and the time that we have here is finite so we cannot possibly hear from every single person uh, we and it's interesting you know on social media it's almost like we're trying we're trying to do that <laughs> and it's just crap we're and it's it's a cacophony but for me it's about making sure that the voices that we do hear from and that we do give our time and attention to are different and they're not all the same and when you have a mannel and traditionally these mannels and uh, you, you can see lots of pictures of them on social media you know the optics of it are really awful when they get called out uh, it's like three four five six sometimes I've even seen like 12 16 usually white usually middle-aged men or, and they all almost look the same they could all sort of be the same person they often have the same tie on they're probably most of them are called david um <laughs> yeah oh so, yeah sorry david <laughs> yeah um but this that's not good enough it's not good enough and of course you know we don't want a world where that change is achieved cosmetically and then, you know, one year people have this amazing diverse panel and then the next year it goes back to the same again. So it needs to be meaningful. But I really hope I'm not going to hear the word mammal in another 10 years time. I feel like I've been hearing it for 20 years and I've been seeing it for 20 years. And it there is change, um, but it is slow and it's sort of two steps forward, one step back the whole time. I think what you did in terms of your podcast is is interesting i would not have criticized you for uh taking on that idea and in interviewing the women but equally i respect you for saying yeah actually maybe a woman should be doing that and that's a sort of awkward space i think sometimes because i hear from 
well, women's networking groups in particular uh, and other groups where it's mostly women talking to each other, that they want more, more men in the room. And they want to know how to reach out to men and they want to know how to make this an engaging conversation for men. And there's a real dis- disconnect going on there of people not knowing how to talk to each other. A hundred percent. So I, I think our decision is rather than making a song and dance about it, here's something specifically for International Women's Day. It's let's just continue to do what we've been doing for the past two years, which is bring on a cacophony of of diverse voices. Um, And so rather than rather than putting it on a pedestal, let's have it ingrained into the culture of creative rebels that this is just a place where you will find interesting voices. Those interesting voices will be from everywhere Um, rather than saying shining a spotlight and going, look at these clever women, aren't they clever? Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction to make. Yeah. And I think lots of women have discomfort around International Women's Day. Um, I know I do. I celebrate it. I think it's a great thing. It's a great excuse to open those conversations. But those conversations need to go on all year, not just happen on March the 8th. And like all things, of course, like Valentine's, Halloween, anything else, uh, it's becoming more and more commercialized every year as well. Of Oh, look, here's this special makeup set you can buy to treat yourself on International Women's Day. (laughs) So, yeah, you're right. The more you can do the work meaningfully the whole time and casually, casually and in an unspoken way, it's, you know, what Adam was saying before about what scales. I think often what scales is doing work that speaks for itself without, as you say, David, having to make a song and dance. Just it seeps into our consciousness of... You know, everybody has a voice. Everybody has great ideas. There are loads of different ways to approach this. There are loads of different kinds of people. Uh, it seeps into our consciousness if you do that every day of the year rather than have only, d- you know, you shouldn't just be doing it one <laughs> one day of the yeah. year. It, it reminds me of like New Year's resolutions where people have this great idea of, oh, I'm going to eat healthy this year. I'm going to go on this diet and it's going to be great. But actually, if you just change the way you eat constantly that's going to be way more effective than having this like little bad diet or this like i'm going to start going to the gym every day and all these great ideas and i feel like that seems to be what happens a lot where you'll get like a movement happen international women's day will come around and they'll be oh let's talk about this for a minute and then it all dies down again whereas i feel like if we all just take kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier that little step of just pushing everything more in a positive direction every single day that will be so much more significant than just a little peek and then you just forget about it yeah that loops back to what we were saying earlier about legacy media you know because in legacy media the question you would always get asked as a journalist is what's the hook what's the peg there has to be a hook or a peg and that could be this thing has just happened and so everyone's talking about it or it's international women's day or it's um diabetes awareness day it has to be something that is current or it could be, you know, linked to the release of a book. And if it turns out that actually the book came out three months ago, then they would say, oh, no, you've passed the hook. You've passed the peg. It's too, it's, people don't want to think about that now. And that's a very, very legacy media way of thinking is how do we monetize this moment? This is where people's attention is. This We've captured people's attention. Let's monetize it. Next week, it won't be the new year anymore. So people won't want to hear about resolutions. So we won't be able to monetize it then. 
So it really is about stepping back from that narrative where our attention is constantly monetized in, in chunks of time. We know you care about this right now, but you won't next, next week. So give us your money and your attention now. <laughs> uh, it's about stepping back from that and thinking, what are the things that I care about every day? And they're not usually things that anybody can monetize apart from you. You've obviously put a huge amount of uh, research and everything into creating the book Lift As You Climb. What has been your main kind of learning lesson that you, you've taken away from creating this work? The biggest lesson I've taken from this is how important it is for us to adopt really, really easy, replicable behaviours that help other people. So it's the tiny things like you could even say every Friday morning, I send an email to somebody who I've enjoyed working with that week. Or every Monday morning, I put on my social media um, a book or a quote that's helped me out and I tag the author. It's, it's making those really, really tiny actions, really natural, really easy to replicate, really easy to remember and not expecting them to lead to anything because they only really lead to anything if you do them all of the time. It's really that idea of using process. I think process is so important to breaking through difficulties that we have and to moving forward. So process is things like um, me saying I'm going to do 100 gigs in 100 consecutive nights because otherwise it's going to take me all year to get up to 100 stand-up gigs. I'm going to set myself that goal. Or it's saying, you know, I'm going to release a podcast every week and this is just what I do. Uh, it's setting yourself those really easy targets and easy moments and even link it into, uh, I don't know, like every time you, you buy a takeout coffee, you send a text to someone you're working with saying, you know, just wanted to say, I really like working with you. Wouldn't that be really cheesy? And I buy a lot of coffee, so I don't be texting people <laughs> the whole time. But it's creating those moments of connection. I've had so many conversations that really came out of How to Own the Room and people asking about these sort of naughty, messy, horrible, icky work-related things, especially around networking. Because Lift As You Climb is really about like a an acceptable version of what one day, once upon a time, we might have called networking. It, people are always thinking they need to go into a room holding up their business card and saying, hello, I would like to have some support and I'm really good at my work. Please let us collaborate. <laughs> and they imagine like then thunderbolts will come down and there'll be lightning and, and the path will open before them. And of course, nobody ever approaches that moment or wants any part of that moment because it's a total cringe and it's also a total fantasy. You know, the reality is these droplets, droplets of boosting people. And you can approach it from a completely selfish point of view as well, because it's scientifically proven that when you boost other people and you give instead of taking and expecting things in return, you get a psychological boost yourself. So it is very much a win-win situation to create these tiny, tiny moments of lift as you climb. And they are so meaningful to other people. We underestimate how meaningful they are. Yeah, it's making Amazing. positivity a habit. It's just something you do all the time. And I think, yeah, there's so much you can do in habit forming. Like James Clear's book, um, 
Atomic Habits. Atomic there's, Habits. I feel like from what you've just said there, there's loads of little ways that you could just add that little bit of positivity into like a habit chain. And it's just, yeah, I think, yeah, if you can, and I think that's where it comes down to, yeah, if you do it a hundred days in a row or something like that of a positive thing, that's going to become a habit that's going to be positive that is then going to build slowly, reflect back on you over time and just lead to an all round happier, better life and world. Yeah, absolutely. You said that much more succinctly than I did. Make positivity a habit. Make boosting other people easy and natural. Boom. Boom. Um, Viv, where can people find you online and details of the book? People can find me on my website, vivgroscop.com, and that has a sign-up for my mailing list, which is free and goes out every Friday. They can find me on How to Own the Room, the podcast, which is it's every week when we've got a series. We do about five or six series a year. So that's How to Own the Room. And you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. It's Viv Groscop, G-R-O-S-K-O-P. Brilliant. Thank you so much.